Well, good evening and welcome to the Maternity and Midwifery Hour. And today we're going to have it slightly different as, as we often do after a festival, because today we had our very first uh, hybrid event uh, at Cardiff and online, which was absolutely fabulous and really exciting. We had a great programme. And so this evening we're going to have kind of edited highlights. And I have to say we, we just had to almost put names in a hat to get the highlights because the whole day was a highlight. So we've got Professor Billy Hunter, CBE, and we have Joanne Cole, who is a doctoral fellow at uh, UCLan, talking about the reflections and the work, health and emotional lives of midwives, the WELM study and where it's at now. Um, we have um, Elliot Ray talking about dads, childbirth and trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. And he's the founder and editor of Chief, Chief of Music, Football and Fatherhood, which is a support group for fathers and to really engage them brilliantly. And then finishing off, we have the wonderful Abby Holmes, who did a closing keynote exploring midwives as role models for health. And I think that will leave you with a very lively feel. And I think you'll be operating your pelvic floors beautifully at the end of it. So enjoy, and we'll see you next week. Well, what an amazing day it's been, and what an honour it is to be here to give your final closing speech. So well done for everyone that's made it through. Um, such a brilliant but an unusual way to do a conference, this kind of hybrid model that we're seeing for the first time. So it's been really exciting to be um, part of. Um, I haven't quite figured out how to turn the blur of the screen off. So there's a gym behind me. If you're kind of wondering where I am, I look like I'm in a, like an aircraft hangar. Um, I will do my best to get that turned off in a second. But I'm Abby Holmes and I am a consultant midwife, as uh, Sue has just said. And I'm also a woman's health personal trainer. And my brief was given when Sue and I had a discussion Sue said to me, make it thought-provoking. So I thought, well, that's easy. I can always do that. I can do that with most conversations that I have, to be honest. Um, but my goodness, has this been thought-provoking? And I hope I'll take you through my journey and to explain to you exactly how I found it is. So healthcare professionals or midwives, health role models. What an interesting concept to think about. So a healthy role model. So thought of course we are. Look at us. Of course we are. We work in health. Right? Of course we are. So um, looking what the Nursing Times published in 2017, healthcare professionals should be healthy to, so that they can be a credible, that's an important word there, communicators of the public health message. I thought, okay, yep, I take that. I do agree with that. Um, so then I set about, well, I think probably I need to think about defining what healthy means because actually... And that was quite easy as well, because very nicely, the Department of Health, of, um, not the Department of Health, sorry, the World Health Organization have also defined this for me and said it defines as complete physical, mental, social and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. I thought, actually, yep, uh, this is going well. I agree with all of this so far. And then I need to think about, so what's healthy? How on earth do you define what's healthy? So hypothetically I want everyone to stand up for me it's the end of the day you could do it as well. if you want to you can stand yourselves up if you've been sat at an office chair coffee room in all of you guys down there in the stadium if you want to stand yourselves up please stand up with me because as you can probably tell and I'm a bit bouncy so I'm, I'm, I'm jumping around myself so everyone stood up right great please sit yourself down if your BMI is outside of 18 to 25 because we know once you move outside of those categories we're no longer considered healthy. 
If you smoke, please sit yourselves down. If you drink more than 14 units of alcohol a week, also please sit yourself down, bearing in mind a bottle of wine is 10 units, just to put that one out there. Um, if you're not doing your 150 minutes of exercise a week, please sit yourselves down. And there we have the Department of Health, very useful infographics, and they did for all different types of pregnancy, children, people with disabilities. Um, but they said we should be doing 150 minutes of our exercise a week. If you're not eating your five portions of fruit and veg a day, as the Eat Well plate suggests, please sit yourselves down. If you're female and you exceed or you don't have 2,000 calories, if you're male, under or over 2,500 calories, please sit yourselves down. And finally, if you are not having your two litres or more of fluid, not alcohol, a day, please sit yourselves down. Is anyone still standing? Because I tell you what, I sat down a long time ago. So there we go. We're back to this. Mm, how do we define health? Well, and equally, health isn't always visible. I've talked about some very physical characteristics there. And if we think back about that definition, we've got our mental health and our social health well-being. And if, if we can say that none of us as healthcare professionals have ever had a moment of mental health unwellness or social isolation, felt lonely, and actually because we've experienced these things, we no longer become credible because we're not healthy. So can you see where my thought process is beginning to go with this? And actually... I'm reaching into something that really is quite complex. So when I thought about this, think actually do women and their families need us to be healthy? And in part, I've decided, no, I really don't think that they do. What they want is evidence-based knowledge to support them and their families to become as healthy as they possibly can. So I'll come back to that in part. So let's hold on to that thought just for a moment. So we're trying to make our, our society as healthy as possible. We are in the midst of a global pandemic. And what did we do when we started to relax things, to make things, um, to get us back on that track to being healthy? Well, you guessed it, we opened McDonald's and we kept the gyms closed. Can you believe that? And when that first happened, have to say, I was absolutely outraged that we could go and get our McDonald's, but we weren't allowed back into our gyms to do physical activity. Mind blowing to me. But actually, again, when I start to think about it, let's park the nutritional contract of a, of a McDonald's and, um, and the calories that might be associated. But I think this might be a Big Mac on my screen the social and mental well-being again of it. I am unashamedly that I let my children go to McDonald's and I'm the best mum on the block when I take their friends to McDonald's for their Friday evening happy meal. And I thought, actually, we met our family and friends there. You went to a park with your meal and you sat and you conversed and it made them feel well. It made them feel happy. So actually, I take back my fundamental outrage that McDonald's was open before gyms. I think it should have been done in partnership. I don't think one replaces the other, but I just, again, talking, but see, show you how I go through this thought process. So remember when I said in part, I don't think that healthcare professionals need to be healthy, but then I think we also, we have a very big problem because our society bases itself on aesthetics. And the way, the best way I can describe this to you is if you were a newly diagnosed diabetic, and you had a phone call and the clinician on the end of their phone imparted their many years of wisdom, knowledge and clinical expertise. Now, you may not lap up every single second of what they're telling you, but you probably take on board the majority of what they tell you. You frantically take notes and you think, right, 
I've been told this is what I need to do to make myself healthy and well. Let's change that round. Let's go back to a face-to-face consultation. And the same practitioner has a BMI of 45 and is going to give you that same information. You have most likely, or that person has judged that clinician before we've even started that consultation. But what are we looking for? We're striving for, for, for perfection. And what is perfection? Well, I thought this was quite nice. And perfection is the illusion based on something we create in our own perception. And so I've got thinking, well, what's my perfection? Have I created anything? What am I doing out there? As I've told you quite a few times now, I'm in a gym when I'm not being a midwife and spending all of my time with women and their families and bopping around in the gym with the pregnant ladies or the postmenopausal or menopausal women experiencing prolapse symptoms, trying to help them be the healthiest that they can be. I'm selling a product. I'm selling myself. And how do I do that? Now, one of the things that I came across while I was thinking about how could I do we need to be healthy role models was this appearance anxiety. I don't think this is something new. I think it's something that we've probably kept very insular and contained within ourselves because we haven't needed to have an opportunity to really share it. We haven't had to worry about it, but we're out there now. We're on social media. There are influencers everywhere. This is me. This is me last night in the gym. As you hopefully, we look quite similar. That's me there. Is that me? What have I done there? This is me. This is me without the blurred background filter on. This is me with the sweat on my head that you can possibly see that I've removed from that other photograph. This is me with my mascara under my eyes because I've been sweating and hot. So that some of that's come off. And I've wiped away basically any imperfection that was on my skin and any sort of note that might give it away that I'm over the age of 40. So what have I done? How, am I still a role model? Am I influencing someone to try to be something they're not? Because this is a phone app that's done this for me. Now, this, the changes might not be that massive that I've created. I haven't slimmed my waist off or my chiseled my cheeks there a little bit. I'm not sure. But, uh, but actually, it just shows even I, as someone that feels as a, as a role model that works in the health and fitness industry, this is what we're doing. And if we're doing appearance anxiety as influencers, are we also creating birth anxiety? And by birth anxiety, we have heard some extremely difficult stories today. They have been very difficult to listen to indeed. And I'm not talking about birth trauma. I'm not talking about fear of birth or tocophobia. I'm thinking about the ladies that have that such expectations of a perfect birth. We are a world of influencers. We have birth workers influencing. We have healthcare professionals influencing. We have social media, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, you name it, it's out there to influence women to be looking for this idea of perfection, but actually I'm not really sure that it exists. There's lots of public health messages. So we go right back to the beginning to that very, very first slide, one of the very first slides that I showed you and saying about how we have to be credible to be um, able to give our health, communicate health messages. Well, there are some of those things that are really easy to do. Please don't stand outside a maternity unit in your uniform having a cigarette, or please don't walk to the health board parameters in your uniform because you're off property, but you're still in your uniform having a cigarette because that does portray a message. Think about the health choices while you are acting as a professional that you make. But when we look at everything, We know there's an abundance of health equalities out there. Embrace tells us so. 
the, this pandemic, unfortunately, has shown us that there are health inequalities out there. They have our women that are substance misusers or users. I don't like the word misuse because if you're using a substance, you're using it, whether that be heroin, cocaine, cocodamol, tramadol, all of those ones. We've got obesity. Now, obesity, I do not discredit obesity. I do believe that we have some unrefuted impact of obesity. We know it increases the risk of birth defects. It makes scanning so much harder in pregnancy. It increases the risk of either a growth-restricted or a macrosomic baby, diabetes, preterm labor, and ultimately a stillborn baby is a slightly higher chance with our obese population. It's unrefutable. We cannot deny it. Um, mental health, well-being, again, these are all things that as we should be influencing as healthcare practitioners, practitioners, do we need to be perfect in all of these areas? Well, I'd say not. And I think actually, if you think that you are, hmm, I think we might need to have a little bit of a word there because actually I know, for instance, I haven't ever been a smoker, haven't ever misused substances, but I'm not sure my mental health has always been on point. I'm certainly overweight after I have my babies. So there are things that we've all done. And I would hate to think I'm not a credible practitioner just because I may have experienced those kind of things. Social isolation. I moved to Wales, knew my husband, and that's the only person I knew. So I'd say I was pretty isolated then, but my social health maybe wasn't that well when I first came here, but that didn't make me any worse for a midwife. It certainly didn't. All of these things that I'm describing to you here fit into women's health. Women and pregnant people are at the heart of everything that we do. It's the focus of this entire conference that we've been here today to talk about. And we want to make sure that we keep our women as healthy as possible. We have an absolute duty to make sure that we are imparting evidence-based knowledge for these women. It would be really lovely to say that we're all going to live by it, but that's just not reality. And that certainly isn't life. It's not my reality because what I didn't say is when I buy the kids happy meal, I generally tuck into a quarter pounder myself, you know, I only, and that bottle of wine, I've definitely had that bottle of wine myself as well. But by placing labels and by trying to import all of this information onto women, we feel that we're embracing them, that we're bringing them in, that we are trying to influence health, we are trying to improve health outcomes, but actually it's all we're doing, pushing our women away from us. So we feel we're being role models, but are we pushing them away? Do we place labels on women before we've ever met them? Quite often, you'll have a referral to your clinic. Mine might be a birth choices clinic because the lady is hoping to make a choice and absolutely she's going to make a choice. It's her birth and it's her body and it's her baby. So it's a little bit of a catchphrase, but it means exactly what it says. But I've already been told whether they're high or low risk. And by that, I have, all, or we have already placed restrictions on the services that they can come into um, the service or the places that they can access. So if we go back to looking at obesity and BMI, I know that if the BMI is over 40, we're gonna go ooh, home birth, birth center. Ooh, not sure about that one. Birth outside of guidance, that's what's going to be written on your notes. And actually we're pushing these women away by rather than saying, I want to facilitate choice for you. I want to facilitate all of the options to help you to become as healthy as you absolutely possibly can. And I want to support you. And sometimes you're going to be down there and you're going to be in that cheeseburger. And, sometimes, and the other times you're going to be stood on the treadmill or out with your friends having that five, 
five mile walk. And it's all about how are we going to support the women to do those kind of things. Like I said to you, I'm in a gym and um, I walked in here probably 2007, 2008 after my, no, that's the wrong year. I do beg your pardon. Um, 2013 after my second daughter was born. That walk through that door was probably one of the hardest walks I've ever done. And we need to remember that about our women. We need to remember that walking into that antenatal clinic for the first time, when she's coming to your specialist clinic to be told that she's overweight, when she's coming to be told that she can't come to the birth center to have her baby, when she's going to that antenatal education class for the first time, maybe with or without a partner, walking through those doors for the first time is really, really challenging. And that's our key moment to make it as positive as we possibly can. Because what are we trying to achieve for the women? We're trying to give them a healthy and happy pregnancy. You can't separate those two out because if they're not healthy, they're certainly probably not happy. And if they're not happy, they're not healthy. So it's really important that we keep those entwined together. It's kind of like safety and birth experience. I don't think they're separate from each other. I think that you can have a safe you can have an alive woman and an alive baby, but safe and positivity all goes together. So I've just told you what we're trying to achieve. So how do we do this? Well, I think we need to rethink what we're doing because we bring them to antenatal clinics and um, we tell them they're fat. We tell them their BMI is elevated. We have terrible bedside manners. We say chubby, or we have even a label of plus size. And if you see what meets the criteria for plus size, well, my goodness, I think that was me just when I was pregnant um, or just after I'd had my babies. Um, and I think we need to get a bit smarter. I absolutely think that we need, to, we need to rethink this. We need to completely think outside the box of what we're doing, because otherwise these problems wouldn't be, still wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be having these women with these health complications associated with smoking, poor diet, social inequalities, obesity, if we had, if it was just as easy as sitting them down and saying, um, could you lose some weights, please, before you think about having a baby? Uh, it's just, let's get smarter. Let's rethink what we're doing. How do I do it? So, um, as you know, if you've seen me speak before, um, I spend a lot of my time with women that have pelvic floor dysfunction. And this was born out of my own very personal experience after having my own babies um, and deciding that wandering around in a tenor lady was not the norm. It was not what was to be acceptable for the rest of our lives. Even if we've never had children, as soon as we hit the menopausal, even perimenopausal stage, that actually this becomes the accepted that actually bladders and sometimes we have anal leakage as well, which is totally unacceptable. Um, so I decided I felt I needed to do something about this. And like I just said, I need to get smarter. So I thought, well, if I just sit in a room and tell women to exercise, they'll nod at me and say, yes, thank you very much, I will. And then they'll walk out and they get back in the car and they drive home and then they go and sit on the sofa and, and then probably never that nothing more will be thought of the conversation we've had. Let's do this differently. Let's bring them to outdoor spaces, which has been really great, obviously, with the pandemic. Or bring them into classes, bring them into gyms like I'm in. I've got this beautiful studio behind me that I use once a week. I have pregnant ladies. We have all our music on. We have us dancing. We have babies. We have breastfeeding. We have everything going on. Um, so, you know, there are different ways to do things, but it's about engaging and becoming active. So just to think about when I, I'm just going to focus a little bit on pelvic uh, dysfunction, if I can, for the remainder kind of, of what, the time that we've got left to talk. 
And just to say, you know, last year in a pandemic, 500,000 women gave birth to babies in one year, just in the UK alone. And 140,000 of them suffered with pelvic dysfunction. That might have been short term. For a lot of them, that will be long term. This will be life debilitating. This will be not leaving the home unless you know you're going somewhere where there's a toilet nearby. That's one year. We're almost at the end of this year. So there's another lot to add on to this and all those years behind. These numbers are enormous that we're dealing with. This is, you know, and I am one person tipping the iceberg. These are so enormous. We have charities set up for them. If you've ever been and listened to the Mazic charity, it is, it, they are like the stories that we have just heard from the ladies that have been speaking um, and the gentlemen that have been speaking. Um, and it's just, it's just not acceptable. I've been to, and trained with organisations set up purely to look after women that have got pelvic floor dysfunction. I wish organisations like that didn't exist. I'm grateful to them for my training. I love the moments that I spend with the women that I work with, but I wish I never had to work with these women to get them to the places that they need to go to. So let's think about the science. I don't really know why I put the science, but it's a slide I think I've used before. Some of you may have seen it before, but it's about what, are we, what am I trying to get ladies to understand or gentlemen to understand, anyone to understand really, is that we, we're very good at looking at things in isolation. We spend a lot of time thinking, it's, it, you know, it's my core. And if any of you, if I say your core, I bet mean, most of you, you instantly put your hands to your tummy and think, oh, it's my stomach muscles. There you are. Well, where are they? Have I got any? Well, absolutely. Good news is you have got some. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to be upright. They're fundamental. They might be buried a bit deep in some of us, particularly, you know, they are me after having two children, but they are there, I promise. Um, but at the centre of our course, we've got a diaphragm at the top here, which is essential to our breathing. Um, and then you've got your abdominal wall muscle, muscles that I've just been talking about. And then you've got your pelvic floor, which I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about but in a minute. And then you've got your lumbar and thoracic muscles, which is at the back just here. Um, and they're all essential to each other. But if they're not talking to each other or they're misfiring, you've got no hope of having some control over there. So what do I do? I invite women to reconnect with their bodies to explore their bodies, to understand what's going on in their bodies and understand the impact that that's having on their physical health their em and their emotional well-being. Because if you can imagine, if you can't plan your activities, uh, you've got to be able to plan it around going to the bathroom, you're going to be really limiting what you can do. If you're not going to go take your child to a soft play, for the fear that your child asks you to go on there and you know you cannot possibly manage that. These are life, that's just, that's just not, not right. It's not the way that we should be living. We will have all had ladies come to our antenatal clinic. If you've done a booking this week or have seen a postnatal woman, you will have said to her, you're doing your pelvic floor? Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah, great, brilliant, great. Nice little tick in the box there. Told her about pelvic floor. Asked her the question, are you doing your pelvic floor exercises? She's walked out of the room going, pelvic floor? Was my pelvic floor? I don't know if I said yes, because it sounded better if I said yes than no. Um, all I know, it might be a appliance in the house. Because um, we don't teach children at school about their, their, the anatomy and physiology of the pelvis. Certainly don't do it in PE, but how to control um, the pelvic floor, which is something that really, we'll get onto the school nurses for that one. So we'll, we'll, we'll move into that realm. And that's another, another talk, I think. Okay, so I'm going to run back. So I'm going to be shouting at you now because I'm going to step back. So this is my pelvis, my lovely pelvis that comes around with me. Well, there's coccyx has fallen off. He's got within this room somewhere. So I must make sure I find that before we leave. Okay, so just to think about a few things. This is your pelvis structure. So this is the thing that we've all got on common. I don't know who's watching me. Male, female, young, old, 
this, what, this unites us. This wonderful structure here is our pelvis. We may all have something slightly different in here, but we've all got a pelvis. So what have I got in mind today? I have a bladder. We normally just throw these on the floor. A bowel. And for today, I actually have a uterus as well. And if you, if you don't have the same anatomy and minus the uterus, you still want your pelvis to do exactly the same thing. You want to make sure it holds everything in there. Nothing falls out and certainly nothing leaks. So I think we can be united in agreeing that whatever our gender, whatever our orientation, we all have one of these, these this wonderful structure that is your pelvis. So to do a little bit of myth busting about your pelvis, um, it is for everyone, not just females, that you can have anal and urinary incontinence from a weak pelvic floor. This isn't an A&P lecture. I'm not going to go through the structure of your pelvis or the, the beautiful muscles that make up this because we all knew that from being undergraduates. And we all remember that. We can all name all the muscles that sit within that pelvic floor. We'll just call it the pelvic floor for now. <laughs> Um, so there we are. So that's everything that we've got there. So anal urinary incontinence effects can affect everyone. It doesn't just need to be a female. Weak pelvic floor muscles is can cause a leakage in either male or female. It can impact on your sexual health for male and female, and it can be life impacting and life changing for both male and female. So when we do our pelvic floor exercises. We need to not just think that these are, this is a female dominated um, thing that no one else needs to do it. So then when, so when you next do your next booking or your next postnatal visit, I urge you to ask both if there is, if there's a male and a female couple, if they are both doing their pelvic floor exercises. So I hope you can still hear me. I'm just bobbing down to pick up the weight. If I asked you to do a little, uh, a little poll of who knows how to do pelvic floor exercises, I think most would probably tell me they did because they don't want to tell me that they don't know how to do them. That they could tell me where the pelvic floor is. Won't, like I said, I won't get you to label all the muscles, um, but actually that you could give me some understanding of the functioning of the pelvic floor. And then it's rudimentary, it's to hold everything in and stop you, uh, give you that control of your bladder and your control of your bowel. We have something called the Squeezy app, which we've probably all heard of. There's a free and a paid version of it. The free will suffice. It is the starting ground. So I'd say it's this kind of level for what to do. And we all say to ladies, just do pelvic floor exercises when you are boiling the kettle, when you're waiting for the toast to pop up, when you're at the traffic lights, um, waiting for them to turn green. They are the opportunities to do your pelvic floor exercises. That's great. I'm never going to knock that at all. But I'd also like to know how many ladies pelvic floors failed them when they stood waiting for the kettle to boil, because it's probably not very many of them, unless they try to judge it and think, actually, I put the kettle on before I go through to the bathroom. And then they may have some issues. But for the general, if they are st static, the pelvic floor is generally in pretty good shape. Um, it's when we start to move, that's when we become our issue. And I'm going to take you through some few movements. So for the very last few movements of your day, I can't see you all, so except Sue. So I will know if Sue if you're doing this or not. I would like to invite you all to stand up and I'm going to shoot back and I'm just going to take you through a few little bits and pieces 
that we are, um, that I would like you to share with all the ladies. This isn't a secret. This isn't my product. I like to shout about this stuff, as you know. Okay, so everyone, stand up. So this is my pelvis. We have your symphysis pubis at the front. We've got your coccyx at the back. It's a static structure. It's not going to move. But we know how to use visualisation. We're midwives. We talk about ladies about it all the time when they're having their babies. So let's do some visualisation. What I want you to imagine is your symphysis pubis at the front, your coccyx at the back. You're going to be drawing them together. At the same time as doing that, you're going to lift your pelvic floor up into your abdomen. So that's squeezing the muscles around your urethra and squeezing the muscles around your back passage. And you're going to do that all as you exhale. So sounds easy, doesn't it? There's a few, few techniques there. We're going to pull everything together. We're going to draw up and we're going to exhale. So let's all do that together. Now, fingers crossed, you felt some sort of connection there with your pelvic floor. If you didn't, we could work on that and Google how to do your holistic core restore pelvic floor exercises. However, if you thought that's brilliant, I've got my pelvic floor nailed, because I'm sure of the predominantly female audience, many of you I'm striking a chord with. Many of you are thinking my pelvic floor is not where it should be. Okay, so I did that static, so let's do that again. We've got your simple scoopers at the front, we've got your boxes at the back, we're going to inhale. We're going to blow out, and as you blow out, we're going to squeeze those two bones together, pull the pelvic floor up, and exhale. And you should feel that contraction in the pelvic area, and you'll feel your abdominal muscles contract as well. Brilliant. Okay. Now what I want to do is, whenever you are in your space, do exactly the same thing, and walk forward at the same time. So, walking, inhale. I can't do this and talk at the same time, so you have to turn on to it. So, inhale, exhale, squeeze the pelvis together, and draw the abdomen pelvic floor muscles up, could you even connect with that part of your body? Because for most women, they'd be like, where on earth is my pelvic floor gone? It has left the building because you've just asked me to move and do the same thing. And does that show you how instantly you can say, well, that makes it click. That's why I can't bounce on a trampoline and control my pelvic floor at the same time because I can't go up in the air and I can't squeeze all that together. I need my body to do that instinctively for me. So it's really easy. Don't be alarmed if you feel, oh, crikey, I just don't know what you're talking about. I can't, I can't do that. Can't connect that in my body. So, what I want to do, they're going to do the thing out. I'm going to go that way this time. So, we've got a set of scoops at the front, we've got a box at the back, inhale, and a walk forward, and then exhale, and squeeze it all together. And just keep doing that. And that's what you need to do for a floor exercise. And then, if you think, actually, I've nailed this, I can feel that connection. But let's add a little bit of weight to it, shall we? This is a five kilo dumbbell. All I'm going to do is I'm going to hold this. And I'm going to lower it down as I exhale. So, I'm going to do it one hand. Two of the Inhale, exhale, lateral exhale, let the weight go down. And there we are. So that shows you. Um, okay, so let's, so those last few minutes, like I say, let's get to come up, all of you up on your feet, at your desk, in your coffee rooms, in the stadium, everyone up. Grab your water bottle, your bag, whatever it is. Let's take a few these coccyx together, inhale, blow out, squeeze it all together and take that weight down. And that is a simple enhancement onto using your pelvic core. The next one we can do, we can pop our weights to the side. 
So you could do this in our coffee room, you could do this in the night, you know, when you've got that quiet, I'm not sure the quiet should exist anymore, but when you do have that quiet four o'clock in the morning shift time, um, you can sit this few days, pop sticks, draw it all together, eat deep breath in, blow it out, take it down, go to one. Find that connection. That's the important bit. That's the concentration that you need to see on your face. That's the connection that you need to feel because that's when you need you know that your pelvic floor will not fail you. Now, this is my gym. This is K2, I would say, the finest gym in Bridgend. I am renowned for wandering around here talking about pelvic floors, dysfunction, all of those kind of things. You know, as midwives, we talk about all sorts, don't we? But it's just really, really important to me. And I hope that you can tell from the passion in my voice. Um, and I'm a bit out of breath from what I've just been doing. I don't normally shout and do things at the same time. Um, but role models for health. I'd like to think I'm going to change my mind. Yes, we are, because we're passionate about what we do. We love the women that we care for. We make sure we give them the best possible evidence we possibly can. We strive to find it during this pandemic. We've had nice guidance still published. We've had RCOG guidance. We have been on it every time some sort of guidance has had to change. And we have moved all of our physical contact appointments over into virtual. So we never lost contact with any woman. So at the end of it, are we role models for health? Yes, we are. And we should celebrate that because we are deserved to be celebrated. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> hi, everyone. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming to my session, first and foremost. It's a, a privilege to be able to speak to you. And uh, when I say it's a privilege, I, I, I really do mean that. Um, you know, I've had a, a fantastic experience with, with some midwives and speaking to them and through my own experience of becoming a dad. Uh, you know, the, the work you do is fantastic, really, really fantastic. Um, so thank you so, so much. So I'm going to talk to you about dads and childbirth, trauma and PTSD. I think it's something that it's an area that's 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 emerging. Um, you know, dads now are more involved in their children's lives than they have been ever, and they are now taking on a lot more of the I guess emotional uh, and mental baggage that comes with parenting. And I always have to give a disclaimer: parenting is amazing. Being a dad is the best thing in the world, but it does come with its challenges, especially when you're active and involved and getting your hands dirty, literally. So childbirth trauma and PTSD. And when I you know, tell people about childbirth trauma and that myself, I personally suffered from PTSD, the expression on people's faces is sometimes blank. <laughs> uh, it's sometimes shock and it's sometimes, oh, me too. And that, oh, me too is, is fantastic. And actually the more I've been open about my own experiences, the more that I've had that response and that reaction. And I think it just goes to show that this is something that is actually quite common. And there are so many dads out there that are, that are witnessing and, and suffering from PTSD after their partner has gone through a, a traumatic birth. So first of all, we haven't got long, so I'll just quickly introduce myself and say a bit more about who I am. So my name is Elliot and I have a history working in diversity inclusion. I've been the head of race equality in the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. I was lastly the head of diversity inclusion delivery at the Treasury, um, but that's not the reason I'm here. <laughs> the reason I'm here is because of the work I've done with dads, with fathers, and setting up my organisation six years ago now, Music Football Fatherhood, 
Um, and we work with dads and we're all about open conversations about fatherhood. So we do that through our blog. We've got hundreds of articles on there written by different dads. We have a podcast called Daddy Debates. We do monthly online meetups called The Lodge and also have a book out called Dad, which is a, a 20 stories from different fathers. I'm also heavily involved in dads at work and do a lot of research around creating equality in the workplace, gender equality and how we support working dads. And I do a lot of talks called Engaging Dads where I go around to companies and talk about masculinity and mental health and, and new dads at work. I'm also a writer, I've written for The Independent and The Telegraph and many other mainstream publications. But outside of all of that, uh, the best job I have and the most challenging job I have um, and the most rewarding job I have is of a father. I am a dad to one little girl at the moment. She is six in four weeks. Um, and we are literally counting down the days every day she wakes up and she says, dad, how many days until my birthday party? <laughs> so we're counting that down slowly. She's very, very excited. Um, but I, you know, I love being a, a dad, but for, for us, me and my wife, the, the start was quite difficult. You know, the pregnancy was re re relatively okay, but quite late on to the pregnancy, we received a, a letter through the post. And that letter said that uh, my wife had something called Group B Strep, GBS, which we had never heard of before. And we had to do a lot of research on. So we were quite worried because, you know, when you Google things, <laughs> oftentimes you get the worst. And we kind of came to the realization that this is quite as can be quite a serious infection. Um, we were also told that the likelihood that the infection was passed on to the baby was quite low. So we were given intravenous antibiotics during childbirth and, you know, we were relatively okay with that. But when the, you know, we went into labor, it was quite difficult. It was a, a very long labor. There was lots of scares around heart rate and around blood pressure. And lots of times there were doctors running into the room. It felt like I was in an episode of casualty at one point where, you know, it's just us in the room and then the midwife presses a big red button and everyone comes running in. And it lasted for just over 24 hours and my, my daughter was brought out via Von Chus. And when she was brought out, she was uh, gray, she wasn't breathing properly. Um, at the same time, my wife had lost a lot of blood as well. So it was a really, really scary moment where there were doctors surrounding my wife and trying to stop the, the blood flow. But at the same time, they're resuscitating and, and, and drawing fluid out of my daughter's um, throat on the other side of the room. And I really remember just feeling like that moment, so helpless, um, quite numb and in disbelief. You know, I think with a lot of new parents, we don't prepare them for what can happen. So you go into it with this fairy tale. And then when something goes wrong, you're completely unprepared and you literally don't know what to do. And in that moment, it was literally that. It was, you know, such a difficult moment where you're really looking at people that you've met you know, eight hours ago to save your family's life. And that is the reality. You know, both the people I love the most were in you know, pretty a, a bad way. And it was, it was uh, pretty serious. And so after a few minutes, they put my daughter in an incubator and they said, where do you want to go? Do you want to stay here with your wife or do you want to go to intensive care? Mm. So I went to intensive care and I remember walking through the, the hospital and these, this, this hallway, I just remember the white walls and being in a daze, not quite sure what to think, what to feel. 
I tried to call my mum, <laughs> but there was no reception in the hospital. <laughs> and just feeling like I was watching everything and having a kind of out-of-body experience, really. And we got into the intensive care ward and the, the nurse there and looked at me in the eye and she said, you know, you've got to snap out of this. Basically, you have to be present for your family. And at the time, I, I, I really remember thinking, she's, she's right, I need, to, I need to come into the room. And that was the moment I kind of came into the room and I came back and I was, I was present again. And from that moment, I was, you know, in intensive care for, for two weeks we spent there. And I met some amazing parents, mums and dads that were just, just caring for their babies every day in intensive care. In, in the morning, we had, this, we had this room where you can go in and all the parents would gather in this room. And they gather in this room so they can get a private consultation one by one, the, the doctors take you out. In that room, literally, I was amazed by the strength. And it was kind of like a, a world all on its, by itself of these people who were having a shared experience but amazing people we met there literally they, they still blow my mind when I think about the conversations we had in that room to support each other so luckily the hospital gave us a room so I could I could uh, I could I could live in the hospital for two weeks and we stayed there and my daughter was having antibiotics and my wife was getting treated and it was it was going okay but um you know we were getting good news and bad news some days the antibiotics were working some days they weren't and it was up and down, but I think we kind of, for the most part, held it together. And at the end of the two weeks, when we were just just had the good news, actually, that the infection was going down, my, my daughter, out of nowhere, developed a, a massive bump on the back of her head. And that's when the doctors really got worried. They really, really got worried about that. And you can see that the tone changed. You know, we had a specialist drive in from another hospital we'd never met before. Um, in our room, the, the, the midwives <laughs> and the nurses were making our bed for us. They were, making, they were bringing us dinner. You know, we could tell that they were worried for us, that the, the, the vibe had changed. And they said we have, you know, they're, they're worried. It could be, a, a, you know, blood clot, anything. So we were booked in for an emergency MRI scan the next day. And that night was, you know, by far the hardest of my life. After being strong for two weeks and trying to hold it together, we literally just let everything out. We, we cried, we prayed. I'll never forget Nagme, one of the midwives joined us in the room. I'm sure her colleagues must have been wondering where she was because <laughs> she was with us for what felt like about three hours. And we were just there, just letting it all out. And I didn't know where the tears were coming from. Literally, I was crying so much and just praying. And the next morning we went for the MRI scan. And a couple of hours later, we went back to our room and we waited and I'll never forget the, the, the nurse running through, you know, bursting through the door, giving us a massive hug. You know, we, we were family. We, we knew these people so well. We were, we were around them every, all day, every day for two weeks. She burst into the room, gave us a massive hug. And she was like, it's okay. You know, it's just a bone structure. You can go home the next day. And I think that's where, I guess, in, in some ways, the story ended, but the story started as well. So we went home. Um, this was in 2015. I had two weeks paternity leave from my company. Um, I had a, a little bit of annual leave left over, but most majority of the time was spent in the hospital. So it was going home, really going back to work, um, into a busy full-time job. And that's when the, the next phase, I guess, of this journey started. Um, for a few months, we were holding it together. My wife was eventually diagnosed with postnatal anxiety. I was trying my best to, you know, 
I guess, suppress the emotions and what had happened and try to process it, but at the same time, not talk to anyone really about it. And my daughter ended up having an allergic reaction, a very serious allergic reaction. And we were back in the hospital again. We were back in the A&E and, you know, the flashing lights back in the hospital. And for me, that's what kind of really um, made me kind of hit a brick wall, I guess. And from there, I was back in that hospital and back mentally back in that place. And for months, I was having flashbacks. Um, I wasn't sleeping at all. I was having nightmares. I was feeling really anxious, over-emotional for no reason. I was watching, you know, I was watching dating programs on TV and end up crying at them. <laughs> I was just feeling overly emotional and I knew that something was was wasn't right um and I knew that there was there was unresolved things that I hadn't I hadn't dealt with but as men uh what we do sometimes is we we try to pretend it's not not real and not happening um and so I didn't actually seek any help for another another year and that was kind of by accident actually because I'd started my platform by that point and someone wanted to interview me about the birth and when they were talking to me they could tell that I was I couldn't really get through the conversation. So she recommended I talk to a birth specialist that specializes in trauma. And then I started to have conversations with her. So now I'm really, really passionate. And, you know, through Music Football Fatherhood, we do a lot of work around supporting dads and some work around birth trauma. We recently did a, a podcast with the Birth Trauma Association and we've got someone from that company to add some, some professional expertise. And we've got a couple of dads who had experienced similar things. And we just had a, a conversation. It was so emotional. You know, there's a lot of tears hearing someone that can is basically explain your experience is very cathartic um but very very emotional as well and that was a an amazing conversation i definitely recommend you go and go and check that out if you're interested in this so now i do a lot of campaigning um and i've written and been quite open about my experience i think the more we can get dads to talk about these things and just realize that it's the reality you know if if you're going to, if you go through an event where your, your family's day, lives are literally at danger and, and in serious trouble, that is a very difficult moment to go through. And not everyone's going to come out of that and just be able to get on with a normal life and, and move on from it. So I wrote this article. Well, I didn't write it, but it was written for me. I, I was interviewed by a journalist. And this came out in June this year, June or July. Um, and it was one of the most viewed, viewed pieces on the, on the BBC News piece that week. It was on the homepage for a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, the amount of, of emails and, and DMs on, on Twitter I've had from dads and mums, but a lot of dads saying, this is my story. You know, I can resonate with this. And they'd never shared their story with anyone else. You know, they're sending me chapter and verse, literally they're sending me pages and pages describing their experience and how they felt and saying to me they'd never spoken to anyone, not even their partners, not their friends, they'd never explained to anyone exactly, you know, how they're, how they, what they experienced, which for me just said that this is something that we need to be more, be more open about and we need to make it more acceptable for men and new dads to, to be open about, about their PTS experiences or just their difficulties after, you know, going through a very traumatic experience. So I wanted to kind of talk to you about a few things that um, I've picked up along the way. And I know there's going to be a, a section from Rachel, the Birth Trauma Association later on. I'm sure she'll give you a bit more context, but just working with the dads, um, you know, we've done a little bit of work with the NHS as well, some trusts around supporting dads for the process. So a few things that I've picked up and I think would be good just to share with you. So, you know, dads and childbirth trauma, we know 30,000 women a year um, experience birth trauma and 
not always, um, but often there'll be a dad that's present there as well. So I think it's really important to recognize that dads are as, you know, they're, they're part of this, of this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they're, they're not, it's not their body, but mentally, emotionally, they are there and they are feeling all, all those feelings too. Dads can also feel helpless, um, scared and fearful for their families' lives. I've spoken to so many dads who, that, that feeling of helplessness, you know, they can't, you can't do anything, nothing really. There's no words you can say. You're not a medical professional. There's nothing you can do on that side of things. There's very little comfort you can give. You're literally just an onlooker. And that feeling of helplessness is, is something I've heard described so many times. I think dads can feel left out of the process. Um, they can feel uninformed and forgotten and sometimes like a backseat passenger as well. And uh, we hear this often, you know, that, that, that the dad is kind of, I guess, cast aside a little bit in the process um, and not really considered. So that's something that we hear a lot. And I think maybe we can do a little bit more about that too. So what can be done? It's a big question. <laughs> Just a couple of things. Um, and it'd be good to, you know, get your questions and your, opinions so please do you know, interact with us and let us know what you think but what can be done so I, can, I think there's a couple of things so first and foremost is engaging dads through the maternity process and increasing awareness of what to do if something can happen so this is really difficult because you know, even my myself when I'm talking to expectant dads I don't want to tell them too much about my experience and I don't want to say too much about what can happen because it might not happen for them and ultimately you don't want to scare people Otherwise, no one would ever have children. <laughs> so I don't know if we need to tell them everything, but I do feel like we go into the process um, so unprepared sometimes in terms of what can go wrong. We don't have a clue a lot of the time that there can be such complications, that complications are so common. So I think we can kind of educate parents and dads a little bit more and say, look, this, this might happen or that can happen. And just be mindful of that. Don't try not to worry about it. But if it does happen and keep calm, um, you know, reassure them that statistically they'll be okay. And just have a little bit of a conversation about what could potentially happen. I think it could help them be in a, bit, a better mind space and be a bit more prepared. And the second, second thing that could be done is, you know, immediate attention obviously needs to be on the mother's health then that doesn't really need to be said of course you know that's the emergency that should be 100 percent the the focus um but in the aftermath you know the hours after you know consulting the dad giving him some information helping the dad feel part of that process asking him how he is just involving him in that in that um process is really really important we talk to a lot of dads who feel like afterwards no one even kind of really acknowledges that they may have suffered and been through something as well um so just just that acknowledgement you know um can go a long way so i would definitely you know think that there's, there's more that we can do there so let's also talk about ptsd <clears throat> so ptsd is an anxiety order sorry this is an anxiety disorder which is caused by witnessing a traumatic event um in this case usually a traumatic birth and PTSD can, can show up as flashbacks, nightmares, and increased levels of anxiety. Um, this makes it difficult for the dad to support their partner and bond with their baby. And dads will often have fears about their partner giving birth again. Uh, we hear this a lot that, you know, dads are sometimes very worried about having a second child. And, you know, for us, we're only just in that place now where we can 
kind of think about it again for a long time we couldn't even fathom <laughs> going through that experience again so what can be done here i think there's a few things again you know supporting dads through the maternity process we know that dads who are engaged through the maternity process and there's some good examples in manchester dads matters are an integrated nhs service that caters for dads that can be really good for involving the dad through the process so when they do need support in the postnatal period they have a point of contact they know that the service is available for them they're more likely to get in touch with the services available i think mental health assessment and support for dads who have experienced a traumatic birth is really really important really good to see that some trusts have started screening high-risk dads now for mental health um, illnesses and that's really really good but it'd be great across the board if we know there's been a complications that that dad is specifically spoken to um, and the last thing I'd recommend everyone do is read the Fathers Reaching Out report by Mark Williams. You may know Mark is a big mental health campaigner in, for, for dads. Um, and he last year in 2020 released a, a report called Fathers Reaching Out, which, which has loads of information about postnatal depression, suicidal ideation, PTSD, the causes, how they manifest in, in dads, and you know, some, uh, some really good recommendations about what can be done too. Um, so I'll leave it there and we can open up for questions. But just to say, if you want to get in contact with me, then you can visit our website. We have a book called Dad Out, which is uh, a collection of 20 moving, moving stories from different dads across the UK, different ages, different backgrounds in terms of race. And they, they speak about widowhood, speak about stillbirth, uh, miscarriage, being in an interracial relationship and raising a mixed race child, growing up without a dad and, and, and you know, trying to figure out how to how to be a dad and i you know i share my story about childbirth trauma and ptsd so please get in contact on social media or linkedin i'm happy to keep the conversation going thank you so much so good morning everybody i'm really really delighted to be here um quite exciting that this um very first uh, hybrid event is actually um on my home turf in cardiff so that's great and hello to everybody watching in cardiff live and online and of course everybody else around the country and globally as well as we heard. Um, so um, what Joe and I wanted to do today, um, Sue asked us to talk about um, the emotional well-being of midwives again and we thought we would reflect on this study, the WELM study, which was carried out in 2017, the initial data collection. Um, give Just give a brief overview of that study but particularly focus on um, the paper that Joe uh, led on, which was looking at the emotional well-being of newly qualified midwives. Um, so that's going to be the main focus of the, the paper. But we also want to think about um, where are we now in relation to all of this, particularly um, in relation to COVID, and what are the implications and what can be done about some of the, the challenges that we've identified. So why does it matter? Why does the emotional well-being of midwives matter. I think Molly was referring to things being seen as the kind of fluffy, fluffy side of, of work. And sometimes I feel the emotional well-being of midwives is seen as that, whereas actually to me, and this is something I've been studying really for about 25 years now, um, it's absolutely critical. It's absolutely critical that for the well-being, the physical and mental well-being of midwives, um, for their physical and mental health, it also means that midwives um, will stay in the job and they will thrive in the job. They're not just hang on by the skin of their teeth. It'll actually mean that we attract um, people to midwifery and then we keep them in the job, in a job that they love. 
but we know that there's been a long-standing and growing staffing crisis in midwifery. I don't need to tell all of you in the audience that we've got persistent staffing shortages in the UK in terms of midwifery. It's estimated currently at 3,500 full-time midwives. And we have poor retention rates. Um, it's, there's a lot of competition to get a place to, to train to be a midwife. Um, there's some dropout within the course, but it's particularly in that period of time following qualification where we lose midwives. And the estimate is that for every 30 new student midwives that start on the course, the net result in the workforce is only just over one midwife, which is pretty appalling kind of um, uh, the, the, the maths of that is just not look good, does it? Um, and then, of course, we've got an ageing workforce and we're losing the skills of midwives in their 50s and 60s. Their skills and their experience and their confidence is being lost as they retire. Um, and so all of this is going to impact on midwives' physical and mental well-being and then ultimately on the quality of care that, midwives, that women and their babies receive. So next slide, please, Joe. So the UK WELM study, just to remind those of you um, that maybe um, don't know about it or that maybe read it a long while ago, this was a study that was commissioned by the RCM and we contacted all the members of the RCM in May 2017 and they were invited to take part in an online survey which used um, validated tools to look at stress, burnout um, and depression and anxiety and also intention to leave. Um, so they were, they were all validated tools and then we also asked some open questions about, which Joe will talk about. Um, so uh, just under 2,000 uh, respondents to the study and that represented 16% of the RCM membership. And this was qualified midwives. We decided it was, it, we wanted to focus on what it was like when you were a qualified midwife rather than a student. Um, it was a joint study with Griffiths University in Brisbane um, in Australia, and they designed the original study, and they now have a, what's called the WELM Collaborative, where the WELM study has been carried out, I think, in about a dozen countries worldwide now. So it's quite exciting because we can compare country with other countries. So the study findings um, were not good. They were really, really worrying. Uh, what we found was that of the, the midwives who responded, 83% were experiencing significant levels of personal burnout. And this is on a, um, a validated scale for burnout. Um, over a third were suffering from moderate to high levels of stress and anxiety and depression. And two thirds were actually seriously considering leaving the profession in the last six months. And when we compared this with other countries who had participated in this WELM collaborative, these numbers in the UK were significantly higher than in other countries, which is, makes it even more worrying. And we found that um, adverse psychological effects were even more common in midwives who were younger and more recently qualified. And of course, those things often go together and midwives who self-reported having some kind of disability. However, it's not all bad news. I'm always worried when I'm presenting this, it may, must make most midwives just feel like throwing in the towel. <laughs> because what we could see was actually that midwives' mental health is supported 
um, by good relationships with their colleagues, good teamwork. Um, there's some lovely quotes about that, which Joe is going to share. When midwives were able to give high quality care to women, that was so important to them. And also there's something very fundamental there about the work that midwives do, which Molly has illustrated so beautifully. And this love of midwives' love of their work, these are all really positive things um, which midwives drew on when they'd had a tough day at work. And there's a nice quote here, I think, um, from, from the paper that we wrote, which we'll give you a link to later on in the presentation, because we said that we were really concerned that younger midwives aged 40 years and under and those with fewer years of clinical experience are actually at increased risk of emotional compromise in their peers because of course these midwives are the future of, of the profession um, and these are the midwives that we, we need to look after all midwives but we must particularly think about the emotional well-being of this group. So that neatly leads me on to um, Joe's section. Um, so I'm very pleased to introduce Joe. Thank you very much, Billy. So as Billy mentioned, um, the original WELM study in the UK found that poor mental health was more prevalent in younger participants and those with fewer years of clinical experience. And that finding was also similar in Australia, Norway and Sweden, you know, in the different arms of the WELM collaborative. So there was a definitely a rational reason to look at this group of midwives. But the real reason was I was an early career midwife, nearly 40. I was 37, 38 at the time. So I had a huge personal interest in this group. So just to share briefly how I got involved in the study. So in 2018, I'd been qualified for just over a year and I wanted to do my master's. And I became aware of the National Institute for Health Research pre-doctoral fellowships, which fund master's level study and support you to do your PhD and one of the things I was really interested in was staff well-being. So I asked Billy to support my fellowship application, which she very kindly did. And I was awarded the fellowship. And when I began the fellowship, we talked about what I could get involved in. So at this point, the WELM UK study had been done. It had been written up and published in the UK. But Billy was aware that she'd wanted to do more with the data, but she'd run out of time, essentially. So we got permission from the RCM for me to look through the data. And the, the free text responses from the early career midwives really struck me, as I said, being in that position myself. So at that point, I was just, just about to finish my preceptorship. Um, so what we decided to do was a qualitative study looking at the free text responses from midwives who'd been qualified for five years or less. And I think my experience as a preceptor, I found it very much like having my first baby, right? really, really difficult, but everyone else seems to be completely sailing through. And I very much felt like the other newly qualified midwives at work were enjoying it and doing well. And that isn't really how I felt. I found it very tough. So it was really illuminating, you know, to see there were 620 early career midwives that responded to the WELM study to, to have access almost to their diaries. You know, it was really fascinating. And I started to see the situations that I was in at work as part of something bigger. So the study was a really incredible opportunity for me. There was no pressure. I was just having a go. Of course, you can imagine I got incredible support from Billy. And there were three other authors, Josie Henley from Cardiff and uh, Jennifer Fennick and Mary Side, both from Australia. So I got to work on a collaborative project. I got experience with publication. 
And even though my PhD topic has turned out a little bit different, I think this experience helped my application. Um, so coming back to this study, so as I said, 620 early career midwives were involved and this was responses to the question of what are your top five factors that give you satisfaction at work and that give you dissatisfaction at work. So the four themes that we found were firstly midwives were under immense pressure, but regardless of this, many of them took a great deal of pleasure in their jobs. Uh, relationship with their colleagues were really important. So where those relationships were positive, they buffered against stress, but where they were negative, they compounded it. And support in the role was absolutely critical. Midwives wanted to be treated as individuals. They wanted control over their shift patterns and their areas of work. So the first pressure was work stress. So almost every respondent spoke about the pressure they were under caused by staff shortages, by heavy workloads or both. Um, they often spent their time away from work, worried that they'd made a mistake uh, or they'd missed something because of the pressure they were under. Many of them said that they were exhausted and it had impacted on their mental health and they felt a constant pressure to hurry, hurry, hurry. So in the community, midwives were talking about overbooked clinics with 80 to 100 women to be seen. In the labour ward and birth centre, they were going from one birth to the next without finishing their paperwork or handing over properly. And on the postnatal and antenatal ward, they often had safety concerns because of staffing shortages. So really midwives talking about very difficult working conditions um, an unmanageable workload, which meant that they had to do overtime unpaid just to do their work, just to get their work finished. Um, they often didn't get breaks, including toilet breaks. And some midwives in particular reported really harsh working conditions. So they didn't have a staff room in some cases. They weren't allowed to drink while on shift. But if you're not getting a break, obviously that's a significant issue. And some midwives were told they weren't allowed to sleep during their night shift breaks, which I found really interesting because the British Medical Association advises doctors to sleep on their breaks during night shift and says that employers should provide facilities for this. And I thought that was a real contrast there. Midwives felt a strong sense of letting women down. So like in this quote, the feeling of failure when you physically exhausted yourself and couldn't possibly do any more is demoralizing. Above everything, not giving women the babies and care they deserve is the worst aspect. So many midwives felt they had to become task-centered rather than women-centered. Um, and one midwife reflected the views of many when she said, I've got just about, um, I've got not enough time to deliver good care. I can just about manage safe care. But many midwives didn't feel that they were able to give safe care. So respondents regularly said they were unable to give one-to-one -one care in labour and there were unsafe staff to women ratios in the antenatal and postnatal wards and they felt that often managers were reluctant to close maternity units when the staffing was unsafe. So this respondent described the huge responsibilities and fear of making a mistake when the workload is too much. And some of the things that respondents mentioned were really clearly dangerous. So, for example, uh, being responsible to care for up to 12 women on postnatal ward or 12 women and babies on postnatal ward, 12 women in antenatal ward, or being in charge of an antenatal or postnatal ward when you've only been qualified for six months. So the second finding that we had was role satisfaction. So even though their work was challenging, many midwives took great pleasure in their work. And they felt it was a source of pride and self-esteem. Uh, one midwife said she uh, 
felt a source of satisfaction was the simple enjoyment and love of the job. And midwives who worked in continuity of care models found this to be a particular source of satisfaction. Midwives were trying to give high quality care, even though they were under pressure. So midwives in midwife-led units and obstetric units really enjoyed facilitating normal birth. They valued positive feedback from women and their families. They liked working autonomously. As early career midwives, um, they often spoke about gaining satisfaction from developing their skills, their knowledge, their confidence. And one finding which was really lovely was even though these midwives had been qualified relatively recently, lots of them were in senior positions and were talking about the satisfaction they got from supporting others. And when midwives gave high quality care, they felt fulfilled at being able to be the midwife they wanted to be. So our third theme identified was interpersonal factors. So working in a strong team protected against the stress of the workload. And many midwives spoke about dear friends that they'd made at work and how this made a really positive difference to their enjoyment of work. So they still felt the strain of working in an overstretched service, but those positive relationships and that good team spirit boosted their morale. And there's a lovely quote here. The awesome sense of humour and teamwork, even in the hardest clinical situations when our backs are against the wall. Clinical staff of all bands seem to pull it out of the bag, which is probably why the NHS hasn't collapsed yet. Credit to them all. We can see, isn't that gorgeous, the real camaraderie and support in some teams. But unfortunately, relationships with colleagues were also cited as a key source of dissatisfaction. So they were a very important factor in how people felt about their work. So this midwife described feeling too intimidated to ask for help due to attempts to humiliate myself and other newly qualified staff in front of colleagues by senior members of staff. And we noted a lot of division between staff groups, so between obstetric staff and midwifery staff, midwives in the community and in hospital and labour wards and birth centres. And one response which I thought was really perceptive, a midwife said that you often get poor working relationships where people and resources are under pressure. And the final theme we identified was role support. So personalised and compassionate support for midwives, not only the women that we care for. And we were surprised how strongly this came through as a theme. Uh, rota issues had a huge impact on the well-being of midwives. And uh, so they spoke about lack of control of their working hours and how that affected their friendships, their family life, their ability to do regular hobbies. And of course, those things are sources of well-being. Um, midwife spoke about the importance of having enough time when moving between day shifts or between shifts and in particular moving from night shifts to day shifts do you know time to really recover and short notice of the off duty was something midwife felt very resentful of in particular but an interesting finding here was there wasn't one working pattern which suited every midwife so some midwives wanted to do long shifts some wanted to do short shifts and some midwives said they were working too many nights and weekends and others wanted to do only nights and weekends and were told that they couldn't by their managers but these issues were really important and in fact several respondents had either gone part-time or actually left their permanent role because of rota issues so their rationale was I can work bank instead and I've got much more control over my working hours so that was such an important factor and midwives who could choose their shifts and their working patterns felt that that was a source of satisfaction to them. Thank you. So just to discuss the findings really briefly, they were consistent with other studies of staff well-being, and we already know there's a well-documented link between 
unmanageable workload, poor working culture and poor safety and outcomes, because both the Francis and Kirkup reports highlighted those issues. Billy, I'll hand back to you. Thank you. So just very briefly now, just to think about, well, where are we now, particularly in the shadow of COVID? Because I think COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted the importance of midwives' emotional well-being and actually the emotional well-being of all NHS staff is now being discussed, being discussed at governmental level. Um, and at last it's received public attention. It's To me, it's a great pity that it took a global pandemic for this to happen, but at least it's happening. Um, and just to say that COVID, I think, produced, I, I worked with a group of UK midwifery professors and we looked at the particular, um, one of the papers that we did, the clinical briefings for RCM, and they're on the website, RCM website, but we noted key emotional challenges that the pandemic had presented. Um, and these included the moral distress experienced by midwives. You know, if you think back to March 2020, I mean, we really didn't know what COVID was going to mean for us all. And frontline staff were very concerned for their own personal safety and the safety of their families. And of course they wanted to carry on giving good care to women and their babies, but also there was that moral distress from also needing to look after yourself and your own, um, and your own family. Um, there was high levels of uncertainty, working conditions were changing rapidly, new ways of working, protocols, and there was frustration and anger at lack of resources and a real sense of powerlessness and exhaustion is what we were picking up anecdotally and from looking at the research that was beginning to emerge. Um, you know, family life was difficult to manage for us all. Just how were you going to do the shopping, look after the children, care for elders, but even more so when you were on the front line. And being concerned for your own safety and well-being, particularly for staff who may have been more at risk of or becoming um, catching COVID or becoming seriously ill. So, for example, um, BAME staff, pregnant staff, staff with existing health conditions. And the support that Joe that, um, jo has talked about so well in, um, in the, the, the um, study of the newly qualified midwives, I mean, there was a real impact, wasn't there, on because of social distancing and physical distancing on the support we could offer each other. So what can we do right now? We thought we wanted to finish on an upbeat <laughs> um, note, really. Um, so what can we do right now to improve midwives' emotional well-being? Because it's so essential um, that we take positive action um, on this. And there are some great initiatives going forward. In Wales, I know there's a really interesting and exciting um, new preceptorship scheme, which has been prompted by this, um, by the the needs of these newly qualified midwives that Joe has highlighted. Um, it's been initiated by RCM Wales, and some of you in the audience will know about it, but just some key features. I've just got some notes here. Um, it's informed by a compassionate leadership approach um, and the NM UNMC standards. And some features include all newly qualified midwives having an allocated preceptor, two weeks supernumerary status, having an ID badge which identifies that you are newly qualified and regular well-being sessions and access to peer support networks. So, of course, that's for the newly qualified midwives. But for all midwives, we need, it's essential that we must improve and create a really positive working environment. There really does need to be even the basic things like staff rooms where staff can get together and give each other that support. So there needs to be real effort and creativity going into how to improve working conditions. 
attentions to models of care and ways of working. If we look at the WORM study, we've got a lot of evidence there about what gives midwives job satisfaction. Midwives really want to give that good quality of care to women. That's one of the key features in what gets them going to work every day. So we need to really think about how we can create working environments that enable midwives to give the care that they've been trained to give. Rota seems to be a really important issue, one that I maybe I personally haven't quite thought about enough. The importance of having plenty of notice um, for rotors and shifts and accommodating preference for shift type seems absolutely essential. And it's a very simple way to make midwives feel that they are being valued and respected in the workplace. So on to our final slide. I think Joe just had a few thoughts here. Thank you. So I think, as Billy said at the start, it, when we see studies like this, it, we can feel really powerless, can't we? It seems so big, difficult for us to challenge as individuals. But many of the factors that early career midwives said that they really appreciated at work and significantly improved their satisfaction are in our control and they're not high cost. So a positive working culture, you know, how we behave on shift really matters to the people that we're on shift with. Getting the rota out in plenty of time, as Billy said, making efforts to give midwives choice over their working patterns. We don't believe that poor retention is inevitable and we think we can all play a part in supporting early career midwives in this time in their career. Thank you, Jo. Um, and for me, looking back on the WELM study, kind of pre and kind of post or in the middle of COVID, wherever we are at the moment. Um, to me, I think it was so important because it really called out the emotional distress of many midwives, particularly the newly qualified midwives. And it raised the alarm that the country's in danger of losing those very midwives that is only recently invested in educating unless something is done. And of course, COVID has only um, exacerbated all of that. And it also reveals, I think, how the poor emotional well-being of midwives runs the risk of poor quality and unsafe care for women. But I think the thing that comes out from the study and both these papers is that many of the challenges that midwives face actually are fixable or they're at least modifiable. And there are systemic changes that can be made which would improve working conditions for midwives substantially as we've discussed. But there needs to be commitment at the highest level. It's not just down to individual midwives, at the highest level, government, um, national and uh, levels, um, and within obviously NHS trusts and health boards and hospitals and birth units to making this change happen and in a sustainable way. Thank you.